This is the Australian Surrogacy Podcast. My name is Sarah Jefford and I'm a surrogate and a surrogacy lawyer. In this episode, I spoke with Renee, who is well known within the surrogacy community for supporting intended parents and surrogates through their journeys. Renee has had two surrogacy journeys. This episode talks about her first one, which resulted in the birth of baby Ethan in 2014. Not everything went smoothly as these things go, and I think Renee really shows some great insights into why it's important to take off the rose-coloured glasses in your surrogacy journey. I'm going to hand over now to Renee, but stay tuned for episode two where she talks about her second journey. My name is Renee and I am a surrogate from Victoria and my journey started not long before my twins were born. I was put into hospital on extended bed rest and there was a lady in the bed next to me who was in there for placenta previa. She went to have her son and she actually had placenta accreta, I think it's called, and that resulted in the loss of her uterus. She was happy that she had two children, but it made me start to think about what if she wasn't happy, who is anyone to tell her that she should be happy with what she has if she really had that need to have or desire to have another child. So I hadn't even given birth to the twins. That was 2012, late 2012, and I was already investigating surrogacy. Once the twins had been born, I never really lost that desire to try and help so I joined Fertility Connections and I joined Egg Donation Australia and eventually the Facebook page and started actively reaching out asking questions basically learning all that I could about surrogacy and what I could possibly offer. On the Facebook page, there was a lovely lady who introduced herself and basically said that if I needed anything, I could call on her. And over a number of months, we established a friendship online and hadn't met each other. We were supposed to catch up a few times, but it just never really worked out. She was going through some treatment and egg collections and things like that and ended up getting put into hospital. And eventually she, she just jumped and said, would you consider caring for us? And she was a little, you know, most people would think that that was a bit presumptuous, but it was headed that way anyway. So I didn't take offence to the fact that she had outwardly asked. And I said, well, first we'd need to meet, first we'd need to have a lot of discussions about everything that we we're going to think about doing and that's where it sort of started so we started dating and they came over and met our kids our twins at that stage were six months old and they told us their story about trying to conceive for a really long time They'd had multiple egg pickups, multiple transfers, multiple miscarriages, some in the second trimester. And when my intended mum was eventually able to fall pregnant, they had to subdue her immune system to stop her body from attacking an embryo as a foreign object. 
and she gave birth to a severely growth-restricted baby at about 29 weeks. Unfortunately, from complications resulting from his prematurity, he passed away at 11 days old. So after that time, the fertility specialist said to them that it was no longer an option for them to both carry or for her to carry a child. Um, there was also some illnesses that she had and treatments and things like that that, that just didn't make it a viable option anymore. So they started looking at the only place that they thought surrogacy was available, which was overseas, and had signed a contract with an agency over there. But I felt that their heart really lied in having a surrogate here in Australia that they could be close to and they could experience a pregnancy with her and her family. So over the next few months, we... We double dated, we went out for dinner. We did things like um, getting to know you games where I'd have a, a list of questions like who was your first boyfriend or girlfriend? What was your first car? What's your favourite song? What's your favourite movie, favourite book? Tell us about your family. Tell us about your childhood. What's the best place you've ever been? What's the best place you've never been? And we put them all in an envelope and we shuffled them around the table and we each took a turn to read those out and get to know one another, which was really good. It was, it was super speed dating. It was basically compressing lives into minutes and hours, which was really good. And then we started talking more seriously about surrogacy. So the next time we had to catch up that that envelope had been replaced with questions like, what are your thoughts on termination? And um, what, what's your ideal birth scenario? Um, and just general questions that were important to ask, but were really good to talk about in a less than formal setting. So we just did it over dinner, a couple of drinks and some dessert and we worked out that we were basically on the same page with pretty much everything and that we shared a lot of the same values on pregnancy and birth and raising children and things like that. So then we decided that we would make the journey official and spoke to the clinic and started to get the ball rolling with counselling and legals and independent counselling. We were warned that at that stage, which was um, 2013, that the process was going to take a really long time, that it was going to take between 10 and 18 months. But we were really persistent with the clinic and with the independent counsellor. We wanted to basically have time between all of the sessions but make sure that we weren't having an extended amount of time. So once one appointment had been booked, we would, we would book the next appointment, that sort of thing, as opposed to having the counselling appointment and then finishing that and finding out that the next counselling appointment wasn't available for two months, that sort of thing. 
So we pushed and we got everything done between six and seven months. Then we went to the patient review panel in Victoria, which is run by the Department of Health. And everyone had sort of talked it up to be this really scary thing, but we'd done all our groundwork and we had heard that no no surrogacy arrangement that had made it all the way to the patient review panel meeting had ever been told that they weren't able to go through with it. So we went in there knowing that. Um, however, it was, I think it was difficult for my intended parents to have to relive all those hard memories again, even though the patient review panel had it in their paperwork about everything that they'd gone through. So it was a challenge for them, although... I think the deciding factor was when our oldest, who at that stage would have been two and a half, jumped across our laps straight into the lap of my intended mum and basically gave her hugs and kisses and everything like that. So it was pretty strong, a strong notice to the PRP that we had this wonderful relationship. So... After all that had happened, um, you know, all, all during that time, my antenna mum was, was constantly going back for egg pickups and collections and things like that. Um, they had quite a bit of a haul of eggs by the time we came to transfer. And we had our first transfer at the end of 2013. It was a day five or six expanding blast it looked perfect and the fertility specialist said flip a coin and that's probably your odds they're almost the best that you can get in this circumstance um and so that embryo was transferred and i'll backtrack a little bit because they wanted to get the embryos tested to make sure that they were genetically okay, which is probably not the terminology we would use these days given what we know about genetic testing of embryos. And so what was going to happen was the embryos were, fr fr were thawed, then they were grown, then they were tested, and then they were going to be then they were going to be frozen again, the ones that were given the genetic okay. So what that meant for me was that I needed to actually have a medicated cycle. So that meant it meant tablets two to three times a day and it also meant pessaries, um, progesterone pessaries and other medications which really sort of threw my body around a little bit. I was bloated, I had tummy cramps, I was incredibly narky and bitchy. Um, and then they found out that my body wasn't actually responding to the progesterone and that I could not keep shoving pessaries in every orifice of my body. So what they decided was I would still be on the pessaries during the day. They would up my tablets and then twice a week I would visit the doctor to go and get a jab in the balm of progesterone. 
which was really fun, pulling down your pants every couple of days to get a needle in your bum of this really nice, thick um, medication. Um, so, you know, that made it hard for me to sit down. Um, the pessaries made me slide off seats. And it just wasn't a fun time. So I knew that I'd be in for the long haul if this embryo took. And given those odds, plus given everything that I'd gone through, plus everything that my intended parents had gone through in the past, it, it, there was no way I wasn't going to work. It had to work because we'd, we'd worked so hard to achieve it. It had, it had to work. And then it didn't. We got a negative. And that was really, it was a cruel reality in the world of surrogacy and of IVF that you can have the great facilities in the world, but it still may not happen. So we, we both took some time to grieve that. And then there was quite a big time lapse between when we could actually transfer again, because what had happened during that thaw is that my antenna parents had lost an extraordinary amount of embryos that just didn't make it through or didn't grow enough to be tested or grew enough to be tested but weren't actually considered suitable to implant. So we took some time and waited for the remainder of their embryos to pass quarantine and the plan was to do the same thing. Start me on a medicated cycle jabs in the bum from the start and I would be on those meds until about 14 weeks pregnant and then also test the embryos as well. So the embryos started to get thawed and again they were dropping off really fast and by the end of it there was pretty much only one embryo left and that embryo was not considered viable to be put through the genetic testing process so after a lot of do we don't we do we don't we transfer my intended parents said as they've always maintained that every embryo is a life or a possible life and they wanted to give it every chance possible so we transferred a day six non-expanding embryo that was a poor little clump of cells into me as my meds were just being pumped up and pumped through me and the fertility specialist had told them that they had a less than one in ten chance of it actually becoming a baby so again i was just like I can't believe that after everything that we've gone through, our odds are so low that why, why can't the universe just give them a break and just give them the baby that they just so richly deserve and that they, they desire. So the two-week wait for that second transfer it wasn't like the two-week wait for the first transfer where there was optimism it was it was an almost a sense of dread a sense of inevitability that it wasn't going to work 
So the bloods were taken and I got the call from the clinic to say that I had a positive. But in the same breath, she said to me on the phone, it's a really low positive, so don't get your hopes up. So I told my intended parents and, you know, you've got to remember that they'd been programmed to expect the worst. They, they'd had so many early miscarriages. They had so many failed transfers. And they said, it's, this little thing is, is hung on, but it's probably on its way out. So we had to wait for 48 hours for the next bloods. And the next bloods revealed that I was indeed pregnant, which completely floored all of us. It was extraordinary that this, this little less than 10% chance embryo that was looking so poor on the screen got put into me and actually had come through and was a little fighter. So we were on tenterhooks for a while. You know, I was on meds. Supposed to be on meds until 12 weeks, but my intended parents put me on a plan of weaning that didn't start before 12 weeks to stop at 12 weeks. It started the weaning at 12 weeks, so we stopped at 14 or 15 weeks. So I was going through all of the the side effects of those, the irritability and everything like that. I also had morning sickness, which I would describe as sort of between in the middle of my previous pregnancies um, in terms of severity, but still, you know, vomiting a couple of times a day and, and very nauseous and everything like that. And, you know, it's, it's a lot harder when you're carrying for somebody else to justify those thoughts and feelings that you have when your head is in the toilet and you're dry retching zero contents of your stomach to go... I'm going to get a baby out of the end of this because I wasn't. I wasn't going to get a baby out of the end of it. I was having their baby at the end of it. And so although, you know, it was always going to be worth it, in those moments it was you were having trouble convincing yourself that it was indeed worth it. So during the first trimester, quite early on, I got some spotting so I took myself off to the hospital just to get some bloods done. And again, you know, my antenna parents were beside themselves. They were convinced that this was it, that, you know, this little thing had, um, had held on and at that time had run its course and that a miscarriage was inevitable. But again, he, he held on. Um, we didn't know it was a boy at that stage. Um, then at 10 weeks, we got the, the genetic testing done. Um, I can't remember the name of it now, um, which showed that it was a boy. So we knew very early on that, that it was a boy. And we announced it to our kids, to which our eldest, um, who was almost three at that stage, thought it was the worst thing ever with a cry of but I wanted it to be a girl <laughs> <laughs> which we all look back on really fondly and, uh, and have a bit of laugh about um, from then on the, the pregnancy went relatively smoothly we had a we decided to go through the midwifery unit at 
one of our local tertiary hospitals. So because of um, my intended parents' history, one of their non-negotiables to me was that I gave birth in a hospital with the highest level NICU that you could get, which is a, a tertiary hospital. So I was happy with that and we settled on a, a midwifery model of care because I was considered low risk and I cannot fault those women there. They were extraordinary. We had continuity of care because we were always under the care of two or three midwives. But we also had confidentiality that we didn't have to explain our situation to everybody. We didn't have to sit in a massive waiting room and have people staring at us going, that's the surrogate and that's the intended parents. We didn't want to be seen as um, the, the weird people or the unusual people. or We didn't want to be objects of discussion. So they were really great and really discreet and they they really understood the fact that I was giving birth and that I had bodily autonomy and that I had the right to make decisions over my body and the child that I was carrying, but also that that was my intended parent's child as well, so that their thoughts and feelings were really important in it. So we found ourselves having uh, appointments together and then we had a, found ourselves having appointments separately. So they could, my intended parents could ask any questions that they may not have felt comfortable asking in front of me. And also the, the afterbirth things that I didn't necessarily need to know about, like maternal health care and for the barber and, and you know, what happens after I give birth, will there be a room in the hospital for them and everything like that. So I didn't need to know about a lot of that. So they did that in their, um, in their appointments. And then I had appointments on my own where they got me in a room and they said, are you really okay? Are you doing well? Is there anything you want to talk about? And, you know, and in the end, we did decide that a good course of action for us would be to have a signal um, that if ever I felt uncomfortable any time that I would give them that signal and I would send my, my intended parents out of the room and, and then that I would have the opportunity then to, to have a chat to them or to have a moment or just to have a bit of a break. Um, I, guess, I guess overall looking back on that pregnancy... I see it as overwhelmingly positive, but that doesn't mean that there weren't challenges. Um, you know, they, as I said earlier, they came, my tender parents came into this with a lot of grief and a lot of anxiety and their own situation, which basically was, was most of the time overwhelmingly negative and tragic and awful so you know I found myself at times getting frustrated because I was so excited yet they were holding on by the seat of their pants not taking a breath you know they'd feel him in my tummy before an ultrasound appointment yet still let out a big sigh of relief to see a beating heartbeat on the screen you know and that's what they carried around with them every day and and I guess I've got to give them kudos for actually letting somebody else, me, take those reins and take care of their baby 
because with everything that they'd gone through, there was an element of control that they wanted um, and to relinquish that control to me um, I think would have been incredibly difficult and was incredibly difficult for them during times. And, you know, there was times where we did have blow-ups and we did have issues and neither of us were perfect. Um, you know, there was a point when I just, I needed some time out. I needed to have a break from all things surrogacy and and so I, I took that break and I let them know and, and, you know, that was really difficult for them because I just requested no contact for a few days and that was really challenging but it just let me recenter myself and get myself back into the pregnancy and find something to to grab onto that I could really look forward to. Um, and it was in that time that I really learnt a lot about myself and I'd always considered myself an empathetic person but I think during the pregnancy it really grew and that what I decided after chatting to my husband which who was just my rock by the way an amazing just wonderful support was that if there was something that I found frustrating what I was doing was I was listening to everyone saying, you've got to communicate, you've got to communicate. And I was bringing it up, but I was often bringing it up in the heat of the moment. And it was just basically turning into a bit of a shit fight. And so what I thought about it and what I ended up doing and, and after chatting with my hubby about it was to say, all right, if something's frustrating, I'm going to sleep on it. I'm going to chat to him about it and I'm going to have a think about it. And if I wake up in the morning and it's still on my mind, I'm going to bring it up. But I'm probably able to articulate it a lot better than I was the night before when I was feeling huffy, puffy, pregnant, hormonal, bitchy, you know, and everything else. And most of the time, something that pissed me off the day before didn't piss me off the next morning. And, and if, if it did, I found that I was no longer pissed off about it. It just might have been an irritation or it might have been a, hey, guys, I've been thinking about this. I wasn't able to articulate it yesterday, but today I have and X, Y, Z. Um, so what I learned to do was basically put myself into their shoes a lot more than just sort of an exterior thing and say to myself, why are they acting the way that they are and why am I acting the way that I am and where is all of this coming from? And once I could identify where it was coming from from their point of view or where it was coming from from my point of view, I was more easily able to deal with it or bring it up. And for me, I think that that was the best thing that I learned about myself and the best thing that I try then to incorporate into my life now is to really work out what's important and what needs to be communicated because not everything needs to be communicated, particularly in the surrogacy arrangement. So off we plotted um, into the, the third trimester and had the gestational diabetes blood test and mind-bogglingly, baffling, bafflingly got diagnosed with gestational diabetes. 
which was just a complete and utter pain in the butt, having to measure my blood sugar levels every day and being told that, you know, it, there was extra considerations for birthing in the, the midwifery unit. And, you know, it was just that extra little bit of stuff that we didn't need um, to have to deal with in the last trimester. So it just meant extra scans. His head was measuring way off the charts, so I was a little anxious about, you know, pushing a giant pumpkin out of, out of me, um, whereas my babies had always been quite small. The twins were obviously very small, and then our daughter was, was quite average. So there was a little bit of anxiety and build-up there, and, and uh, my intended parents, in their infinite wisdom in the last trimester, decided they wanted to sell their house. So that was really interesting. Um, the, the auction was basically the week before our due date. And, um, and I had convinced myself that I was going to go early. So I was always anxious that maybe we were going to, you know, they were going to say sold and I was going to say I'm in labour. But it didn't happen. I, I left work probably a week later than I should have. I thought that maybe I would be able to handle it, but I severely underestimated the burden of being pregnant while having twins and an older, their older sibling, who was only 17 months older than them. So by the time it came to birthing, the twins had just turned two and our eldest was three and a half. So... Yeah, that was, looking back, that was pretty insane. Probably one thing I would have changed if I had have done it again would be to actually do it when my kids are a little older. But um, I ended up going overdue. So made it to 40 weeks, which I never thought I was going to make it to. At 40 weeks in one day, I was totally over it. So I went to a pump class at the gym and told the male instructor that I wanted a, I wanted a, a set of songs that would put me into labour, nice big beats and lots of movements. And at the end of it, he said to me, have you gone into labour? He was only young. I said, do I look like I've gone into labour? And he said, when are you due? And I said, Yesterday, he <laughs> almost passed out. <laughs> so a few more days came and went and I was bored out of my brain and I was pacing and I was uncomfortable. And I ended up accepting a couple of stretch and sweeps from the midwives. The first one didn't work. The second one was performed by one of the midwives who everyone said had magic fingers and a really high success rate. So I was really interested to see what she could offer me although it was very uncomfortable and less than 24 hours later I went to labor after eating sprinkles on toast and giving everyone in my facebook feed a rundown of every day the things that didn't put me into labor like watching a matthew mcconaughey movie or eating a cake or getting up in the middle of the night to put a roast on or something like that because obviously in a surrogacy arrangement it's not just your family and friends or your husband or partner's family and friends that want to know 
when you're due. It's your intended mum's family and friends and your intended dad's family and friends. So lots of messages, lots of, hey there, how are you going? Under the guise of, I want to know if you've had the baby yet. (laughs) (laughs) So went into labour, rang intended mum to let her know and for the first time during the whole entire pregnancy, she didn't answer the phone, which she'd done all the way through with, oh, my God, what's wrong, was the first thing she'd do when she picked up the phone. And so I was a bit like, oh, well, what am I going to do now? So I tried her a few more times and she still didn't answer. Turns out they were packing stuff out of their house to, to move because their, their place had been sold. And... And my intended dad said, hey there, I'm in labour. Oh, 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 okay, okay. I'm getting in a cab now. I'm getting in a cab. I'm just like, calm down, calm down. He says, how far are you at party contractions? And I told him. And how long are they going for? And I said, just calmly make your way to the hospital and, um, and we'll meet you there. And so... Apparently, he'd jumped into a cab and said, she's having a baby, she's having a baby. And the, and the taxi driver had hightailed it there all the time wondering what the hell was going on when he's ringing up his wife in the car saying, baby, she's having a baby, honey, oh, my God, darling, she's having a baby. <laughs> so he didn't know what was going on. Um, got there and, and things were... were coming along nicely it was nice to have that little bit of time in the hospital room in the birthing suite before they got there just to get our just to center ourselves and just be aware of our surroundings um hubby and i had taken hypnobirthing classes and he had supported me through the births of our own children and i was very wary about Um, outside influences and although I really wanted my intended parents there I really sort of wanted them away from the action just to let us do what we needed to do what my body wanted to do and also what we've done together before so you know I affectionately said to them your job is to sit down shut up and watch your baby being born Um, which they were very respectful of Um, Intended mum turned up about 45 minutes after intended dad in a tizzy wearing a white tank top, which I was like, that's going to be fun. Um, at one stage, you know, I, re- I remember intended dad looking at his watch and he was timing my contractions and I remember growling at him through my contraction going, don't time my contractions. <laughs> you know, was a bit amusing, not for me. Um, hubby had a good laugh. Um, but apart from that, they just they just let me go. And there was times that I felt like I was in a zoo a little bit. So I went to the toilet a few times, again, just to, to re-centre and to think about my aims and, and, and get my body back into rhythm again. And the second time I went to the toilet, I called the midwife in and basically said, I feel like everything's slowing down. So she sent my intended parents out of the room. We did an internal examination and found out that 
probably breaking my waters would be the best option just to get things moving along. And so that happened and and they came back in and things were really starting to ramp up. And I went to the toilet another time, looked at myself in the mirror and said, you can do this, you can do this. And then got back out and exclaimed to the whole entire room that I no longer wanted to wear pants and I didn't give a shit who saw what. <laughs> so have my music on and just riding through the contractions and they started ramping up and ramping up and ramping up and the midwife was brilliant and hubby was just brilliant. He just knew everything that I wanted and he was giving them reassuring looks and reassuring words as well as me. And I could feel him coming through my pelvis and I remember I was on the border of transitioning and saying to them, with my eyes closed. If you guys want to see your baby born, you have to come over here now. <laughs> and hubby whispered in my ear and said, they're already behind you. Because <laughs> I was on the floor, um, leaning up against the bed. And with a few massive groans and grunts and primal inhuman sounds, their little boy, who still had a massive head, was born in between my legs straight into their arms. And we were all sobbing. <laughs> we were so emotional. It was just, I could feel their tension just melt away. I could feel everything that they'd gone through in the last like five or six years just dissipate as this little boy was delivered safely into the arms of his true parents. It was magical. It was electric and, you know, it was unlike any experience I'd ever had. You know, birthing our children was amazing, but this was just, it was different in just as good a way as birthing our own kids was. And they were just saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I couldn't see what was going on because they, I'd given birth behind me. And so they were just hanging around my butt until the cords stopped pulsing. And I remember saying, just focus on your baby, not my bum. <laughs> and, um, and the intended dad got to cut the cord. Intended mum's white tank top was completely covered in blood and baby goo. And they had skin-to-skin -skin contact right away. They, um, they took him over to the seat on the other side of the room and, and um, basically introduced themselves to him as I st steadied myself to try and get back up onto the bed. And I remember looking over at them and they were just so enamoured and so in love, yet also so grateful to us as well you know in that moment they they remembered that you know we were there and the sacrifices that we made and also the sacrifices that they had made as well and it was just it seemed to be full circle for everybody for them for everything that they had gone through 
for us as a team and the ups and downs that we did experience. And then for myself and hubby as well, for this dream that he crazily let me go on to try and achieve for someone else. And then things got really exciting. (laughs) Um, We were having a natural third stage, so a natural release of the placenta without the syntocin injection, which makes it come away from the uterine wall. And my placenta wasn't really coming out. And then I can't remember if it came out on its own or whether they ended up giving me the jab. Um, But it looked good. It looked complete. However, the midwife did say that it was huge. She said it's a massive placenta and really thick. Um, Said no wonder he didn't want to come out because he was too busy, you know, getting what he needed in there from me. So placenta came out and everything was fine. And then all of a sudden she said, oh, I'm just going to give your tummy a little bit of a push. And um, I felt this excruciating pain and a release. Actually, I think the placenta hadn't come out at that stage because I remember saying, that's not the placenta. And she said, no, it's not. She said, that's a blood clot. I think after that stage, they'd given me the drugs to release it. And so that was about the size of a small football. And they said, all right, we're going to have to keep a bit of an eye on you. And a few minutes later, I remember the, the midwife whispering to me and she said, listen, I'm just going to send your intended parent out of the room. She said, we have to do some checks and some tests and it's really not going to be the nice thing for them to have to watch and, and hear. I was like, okay. So off they went and they were understandably worried. And hubby was extremely worried about me. And I was like, listen, everything's going to be fine. I'm in capable hands, blah, blah, blah. And they called her doctor in um, to have a look at everything. And she basically pushed down on my stomach again and opened me a little bit. And it was just gushing with blood and clots and all of that really nice stuff that you don't really want to be talking about on a podcast but anyway TMI um and so next thing you know the emergency button had been pressed and everybody was coming in so I had a niece just asking me a million questions while her two offsiders were trying to get a cannula in both of my arms unsuccessfully felt like a pin cushion Someone else kept pushing down on my stomach and someone else was weighing all of the loss that I'd had. Um, Someone else was stitching up a tear that I'd had just to make sure that that wasn't contributing to the blood loss. My mum came in and went deathly white as she saw me laying on the bed with my legs in stirrups and my arms out either side of me. Um, with someone stitching me up and all of this blood being weighed and people trying to jab needles in my arm. So she was extraordinarily distressed to see all of that. To which I said to her, even though I'd had morphine at this stage, Mum, I'm fine, I'm fine. And, and it took her a few minutes to say, oh, you really are fine, aren't you? And I said, yes. So the doctor basically said, listen, we're going to have to take you to theatre. You, I'm going to give you 10 minutes for your uterus to get itself under control. Pump me with a, 
a massive amount of drugs that made me feel sick and a sense of impending doom and all this sort of thing. Um, and, and I said, you know what, you know, if you have to take me to surgery, fine. And if you have to take my uterus, that's fine because I've done what I wanted with it. So he was like, well, I don't want to take it if I don't have to. And I said, but if you do, I'll, I'm okay with that. And so 10 minutes passed and literally as he was walking in, one of the midwives said to me, I think it's soft. So I dodged a bullet and I didn't have to go to surgery, but in the end I'd lost two litres of blood um, in about 45 to 60 minutes. So, you know, it wasn't a small amount. And at that stage, my intended parents were really, really worried and they asked another midwife who wasn't familiar with our case how I was going and were told that due to confidentiality reasons, they weren't allowed to know what was going on. And so they'd just gone through this magnificent experience of seeing their son born and then to not know how their surrogate was going when quite obviously they had heard the call and seen everybody rush into the room were just distraught. So I didn't know that that had happened, but Matt had ducked out to appease them on a number of occasions to say, this is happening, that's happening, everything's okay, and basically said to the nurse, keep them up to date. So at that stage, I was absolutely stuffed. So we made a joint announcement on social media, um, and then I got moved up to the ward. So not something that we'd planned. I'd planned to go home about 12 hours after the birth, and they, they were going to stay in with their, their son overnight. So they were still able to do that down in the, the, um, in the birthing suites. And then I was up in the ward. But they brought him to me so I could have cuddles and say hello. And they were checking on me and messaging me and everything like that. You know, it was an interesting night. I had a, um, I had a, a catheter in and a, a urine bag and that exploded in the middle of the night covering my whole bed in urine <laughs> and myself and my brand new pajamas that my intended parents had bought me and um and then i'd had a minor bleed in the middle of the night so i know getting about three sheet changes and the poor woman next to me was just like oh this crazy surrogate what you doing and then the next day i was absolutely massively puffy from all the fluids that have been you know run through me and intended parents came up to say that um they were being discharged and with my little sorrow bubba and that they were going home and i still had to stay in there for a few more hours so they went home and and i just sort of was like okay well what the hell do i do now Everything over the last two years had been building up to this moment and I had this massive sense of achievement and accomplishment and I was so proud of what I did, but I had no idea what to do next. I was like, how come I didn't plan for this? <laughs> so off I went home. I had, a, I had planned to go back to work you know, in a very short period of time, but the blood loss had left me with low iron levels and I was absolutely exhausted. And so I pushed that back a couple of weeks and it was 
Um, it was a lot more of a harsh recovery than I'd anticipated. Um, I just thought I'd snap back and, you know, once all the swelling and all that had gone down, I'd just be back on my feet again. But I really struggled with the fact that, you know, I'd done something so great and so awesome um, that, you know, it seemed to be unfair that I had this PPH and that I had this low iron and that I was so um, that is that's where my head was at that stage um, so eventually I just got back into my new normal started back at work and and things like that um, in the meantime kind of parents brought their little boy over as often as they could and you know we had an arrangement from the very start that post birth all bets regarding anything were off you know, we weren't strict about I have to see him at this time or you have to bring him over at that time or I have to come visit or, or anything like that. Um, it was basically me recognising that they were adjusting to their new normal as parents of, a, you know, a beautiful, healthy baby who was home with them and all of the craziness that came with that. You know, my antenna mum was inducing lactation to feed him and and you know dealing with nappies and reflux and all of that sort of thing and and so I never really expressed oh I have to see him I have to see him and I didn't ever feel the need that I had to however they'd always been ridiculously wonderful saying if you ever want to see him, you just tell us and we will drop everything and we will come over. Um, which they adopted that same stance throughout the pregnancy and they were magnificent. You know, I remember one time where it was 8 o'clock in the morning and we had a 2 o'clock or a 4 o'clock appointment at the hospital and I rang them up and I said, I already know I'm not going to make it. It's just too crazy the kids are just going psycho and within an hour one of them was on my doorstep helping me out you know that was they were so great that way during the pregnancy and they were so great that way and you know eventually after a couple of days of i don't need to see they said we're bringing him over on I birthed on the Thursday and they brought him over on the Sunday. And it was really important to us that we didn't introduce surrogate Bubba to our kids in the hospital because I never wanted them to see him in my arms. I never wanted them to, to think that he was their brother, the sibling, um, because, you know, at that stage they were two, two and three and a half. So... You know, they they understood the premise of what we were doing. We were very open with them about that, but I didn't want any confusion. So they came over on the Sunday and they had him in their arms and they came in and said, this is our little boy and this is who your mummy had in her tummy and then when he was born, she gave him to us and he's our son. So they were so excited. They had cuddles, we took lots of photos and, and he started getting a little bit upset 
So I put him in my arms and I was just soothing him and saying, hey, buddy. Like his eyes opened as soon as he heard my voice. He knew it was me. He's like, hey, I recognize that voice. And all of a sudden my body went haywire. I had my uterus contracted. I had a letdown, even though I was on, I was on meds to suppress my supply because of all the drugs I'd had um, post-birth. So, yeah, had a letdown and I just started crying and I couldn't stop myself. It was totally involuntary. What my body was doing versus what my brain was thinking were two totally different things. My body was saying, hey, that's your baby. You birthed him. And my mom was saying, I know he's not my baby, but what the hell is my body doing? And I remember laughing while crying and saying to my intended parents, I don't want to keep it, but I don't know what's happening with my body. <laughs> and it was just extraordinary. I'd never experienced anything like it where I just had this total lack of control over everything that was going on. And I gave him back to them and he settled down in their arms and then everything was fine with me and it never happened again. And it was just a wonderful curiosity that, you know, to experience something as weird as that. Um, so he's almost four now and we see him when we can, you know, life gets busy and gets in the way. So we don't make any firm plans. We have to see each other every one week, two weeks, four weeks, six months or whatever. We just say, hey, we're going out, we're doing something, do you want to come along? Or, um, you know, we're planning a games night in a few weeks where we can all sit down and play Uno and Operation and stuff like that. So that's good. And then we see each other at Christmases and birthdays. We go to birthday parties and, you know, my tender parents family and friends are wonderful and they're so incredibly grateful and thankful and you know sometimes for a long time it didn't really sit well with us to have so much thankfulness come our way because for us we did something for somebody that they couldn't do themselves and it wasn't until my intended mum's mum said something to me that it made sense. She said, you know, intended mum is my only daughter. She said, you've made me a grandmother. She said, what you've essentially done is you've created a generation and you've created a lineage that's going to continue on. Whereas for the longest time, we actually thought that it was going to stop. And I was just like, oh, yeah, that, you know, that really hit home. And then after that, instead of trying to justify why I shouldn't be thanked, I just started saying thank you. They'd say thank you to me and I'd say thank you, I appreciate it, you know, because I, you know, you go into it thinking that it's going to be one thing and then, you know, to be explained in that way was just huge and, you know, ne as I said, never occurred to me that that's the way that they were thinking of it. So, you know, to this day, I love Intended Bubba with all my heart and 
I call him my special little guy and he knows that he came from Nay's tummy and, you know, we call each other's kids' cousins and they play together so well and, you know, for the most part, he's more in love with my husband than he is with me, which we always have a bit of a laugh about. Um, But, you know, looking back through everything from, you know, the difficulties of negotiating our way through the requirements of the patient review panel to the difficulties of having a first file transfer to the challenges of the what ifs of the second transfer to the the illness and the gestational diabetes and the the difficulties that we all went through throughout the pregnancy the postpartum hemorrhage, you know, it looking back, it was all worth it and I don't have any regrets and I just I just put it down as something that, you know, I can be incredibly proud of, that we can be incredibly proud of because we achieved it as a team and that my kids will know that they don't always have to do something for somebody else to get something tangible in return or to get money, you know, because it's altruistic in Australia, you don't get money, that you can just simply do something out of the kindness of your heart to help somebody else out because they're going through a hard time. And, you know, I want to leave that legacy for my kids and I want them to be proud of what we all achieved together and, you know, and see this little boy grow up and know that, you know, they have that special relationship with him and that's, you know, that's the warm and fuzzies that I get when I look back on it. I wanted to thank Renee for being so candid and open with me about her first journey. I'm hoping to release her second journey recording in a few weeks. In the meantime, if you would like to get in touch, you can find me on Instagram, on Facebook and at sarahjefford.com.